Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. So, coming up in episode 96 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we begin with the news that the UK has dropped the NHS Crop ID 19 tracking app in favour of following a solution using the SDKs provided by Google and Apple. We then look at whether the mass surveillance introduced as part of countries' reaction to COVID-19 could in fact be here to stay. We then have an update from Babylon, the GP provider who we mentioned in last week's episode of GDPR Weekly Show, that they've now confirmed their patient record data breach. We then have news that Google have lost their appeal against the 50 million euro penalty imposed by the French Information Commissioner CNIL, and so Google will now have to pay that 50 million euro penalty. We then move to Brexit, which is something we've not discussed in any depth for quite a while on GDPR Weekly Show, but it's reared its head this week as the EDPB have issued a warning to the EU Commission that they may find that UK data legislation is not sufficient for UK data privacy to be regarded as adequate under GDPR after the 31st December 2020, when the current transition period comes to an end. We then have news that the Hungarian Data Protection Authority has imposed a €290,000 penalty for website database vulnerability on one of its telecom providers. We then have some guidance from the ICO, which they've issued on how to explain artificial intelligence decision-making in relation to GDPR. So if someone requests information on how your system performs a decision, then how you should explain that and how you should take artificial intelligence into account. We then have, did somebody say just eat? data breach, uh, a data breach involving the Just Eat takeaway delivery service. We then have news of a data breach at cycle retailer Wiggle, and also a data breach at food delivery company Foodora. We then have an update on the Sheffield automated number plate recognition system data breach, which we brought to you a few weeks ago here on the GDPR Weekly Show. And we then have news from Canada where the Quebec government have introduced a new data protection law which is based very heavily upon GDPR. We then have the results of a two-year review into GDPR by the European Broadcast Union. And finally this week we have news from CNIL in France that they have now come to a definite decision that web-scraped email addresses are covered by GDPR. So there's always a great variety of articles for you, which we hope you find useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please email us at feedback at gprweeklyshow.com. And we do read every single piece of feedback that we receive. And wherever possible, we implement your, your suggestions into future episodes of the show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, we're not able to reply to each piece of feedback individually. And... As this is episode 96 and we're rapidly heading towards episode 100, please do listen out for details of our competition, which we're running, where one of you, one of our lucky listeners, could win £100. Details of the competition are coming up later in the programme. And to help you, if you look at our LinkedIn post for this week's episode, then 
you will see a useful diagram which may well help you in taking part in the competition. We will also make that diagram available on the GDPRweeklyshow.com website in the next few days so that again you'll be able to view it there. But please do enter the competition. One of you has to win £100. So please do have a think, listen to the question and send your answers to us simply by sending an email. Your Coronavirus Roundup from the GDPR Weekly Show. We begin this week with news of a major U-turn by the UK government in regard to their Top ID19 tracking application. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that the UK government has been developing its own application to track people with COVID-19 via NHSX, the NHS Digital Division, which centred around a centralised server solution, which was different to the solutions being proposed by other organisations across Europe, and crucially also in the against the other organisations across Europe and indeed across the world, was not making use of the technologies provided by Apple and Google. Well, in a major U-turn, the UK announced this week that it's now ditched that app, that the trials that it carried out in the Isle of Wight were not successful, and so it's now moved to developing an app using Google and Apple technologies, just like other countries around the world. And indeed, it's to be hoped that there can be more cooperation between countries across the world to ensure that development of the app can be as standard as possible and also come along as quickly as possible, because obviously the need is very immediate. However, the Google Apple design, because it doesn't send data to a centralised server, it does have the drawback that it doesn't provide the epidemiologists with the access to data which the UK solution, theoretically at least, would have provided. Baroness Dido Harding, who heads up the wider NHS test and trace programme will only give the green light to actually deploy in the Apple Doodle technology if she judges it to be fit for purpose, which she does not believe is the case at present. It is possible, of course, that that means the app may never happen. Other countries that are known to be developing an app using the Doodle and Apple technology include Germany, Italy and Denmark. Commenting on the decision, a NHS digital spokesperson said that the centralised version trialled on the other white had worked well at assessing the distance between two users, but had been poor at recognising Apple iPhones. Specifically, the software registered about 75% of nearby Android handsets, but only about 4% of iPhones. By contrast, the Apple Doodle model logged 99% of both Android mobiles and for iPhones, but it does have to be borne in mind that the Apple Doodle model at present is not so good at calculating the distance between the two phones. In some instances, it could not differentiate between a phone in a user's pocket one metre away and a phone in a user's hand three metres away. And it's understood that Ireland are now developing an app with the Doodle Apple solution and they've hit the same issue. At the Daily Downing Street briefing, House Secretary Matt Hancock suggested the original plan might have worked if it had not been for Apple's restrictions on third parties' apps' use of Bluetooth on Apple devices. Apple software prevents iPhones being used effectively for contact tracing unless you're using Apple's own technology, he said. Our app won't work because Apple won't change that system and their app can't measure distance well enough to a standard that we're satisfied with. What matters is what works because what works will save lives. 
Baroness Harding added, What we've done in really rigorously testing both our own Top ID 19 app and the Doodle Apple version is demonstrate that none of them is working sufficiently well enough to be actually reliable to determine whether any of us should self-isolate for two weeks, and that's true across the world. In response, Doodle noted that it and Apple had developed an application programming interface, a set of functions and procedures for others to build on, rather than a fully-fledged app. We've developed an exposure notification API with Apple based on consultation with public health experts around the world, including the UK, to ensure that our efforts are useful to authorities as they build their own apps to limit the spread of 12ID19, while ensuring privacy and security are central to the design, added the Doodle spokesman. The latest developments come a day after the BBC revealed that a former Apple executive, Simon Thompson, was taking charge of the late-running project as part of Baroness Harding's team. Earlier this week, the European Commission said that France, which has adopted a centralised app, would face challenges with regard to individual data security. If Baroness Harding decides the Apple Doodle tech is never good enough to roll out, then another alternative might be a system based on wearable technology, and we've got an article about that later in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And the other thing to bear in mind with the launch of any app is that while the government is still set to launch the app of some kind across England, health is a devolved issue, and as a consequence, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales have still to commit to the initiative. A spokesman for the Scottish Government said we will continue to work with the UK Government to gather the information we need on data integration, technical information and overall timescales before making any decision whether or not to support its use. Equally, a spokeswoman for the Northern Ireland executive added, People in Northern Ireland already have access to a symptom checker and advice app called TopID19NI, which more than 50,000 have downloaded and used regularly. This helps people to improve access to information, particularly when they have been advised to self-isolate. So we wait and see what happens with this, and doubtless we will have updates on this in the coming week in the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay in. Stay safe. With the introduction of Top ID 19 tracking apps in a number of countries across Europe and indeed across the world, there is some growing concern that the mass surveillance now put in place for Top ID 19 tracking could become the norm and that mass surveillance could be here to stay. The measures have often been billed as temporary necessities rushed into place to help track the Top ID 19 infections, but Governments have been accused of denting civil rights with the widespread use of techniques such as phone monitoring, contact tracing apps and physical surveillance such as CCTV with facial recognition. And of course we have the example of Hungary where countries have chosen to add in their own legislation in response to Top ID 19 which has by doing that removed some of the safeguards that GDPR was originally brought in to protect. Top 10 VPN, a pro-digital privacy website that reviews secure internet connection software, has maintained a database since March of digital and physical surveillance measures implemented to fight the virus. As of Wednesday this week, it showed that digital tracking was in use in 35 countries, with contact tracing apps in at least 28 countries, half of which use GPS location data. Meanwhile, more than half of these apps do not disclose how long user data is going to be stored for. Regular listeners to the GDPR Weekly Show will remember that Israel was one of the first governments to introduce controversial phone tracking when it directed the country's secretive internal security agency in March to monitor the mobile phones of people suspected or confirmed to have been infected with Top ID 19. Security services stopped the tracking this month, but by then a dangerous president had already been set. 
Tehila Sports Outsula, an expert on privacy in issues at the Israeli Democracy Institute think tank, said it does not mean, God forbid, if we do face a second wave, they're not going to reuse it. Israel's approach of centralised spying has been likened to that of China, where a surveillance dragnet has escalated domestic spying in the name of containing COVID-19. Other countries have focused on asking, or in some cases demanding, that citizens download contact tracing apps. A state-built app in India called Aroja Setu, and downloaded by more than 100 million people, has led to fierce criticism. It uses both Bluetooth and GPS and is mandatory for all government employees to download. Amnesty International said on Tuesday that its security lab investigation team had reviewed contact tracing apps from Europe, the Middle East and North Africa and found those in Bahrain, Kuwait and Norway to be some of the most invasive in the world. All three of these use live or near-live tracking of users' locations by frequently uploading GPS coordinates to a central server. Norway announced on Monday this week that it had now suspended use of the app. Amnesty said it had shared its findings with the Norwegian government earlier this month. Qatar has continued to make a COVID-19 tracing app mandatory even as the kingdom has relaxed its COVID-19 lockdown and despite security loopholes that expose potential personal information of more than a million users. If you're in Qatar and you're caught outside with a mobile phone without the app installed then that's punishable by a fine of up to £43,000 or three years in jail. In Hangzhou, a Chinese city of 10 million people, authorities announced last month that they would seek to expand their coronavirus app to gather more comprehensive health and personal data. Under the proposal, an individual status would be color-coded and stored out of 100 based on medical records as well as other lifestyle choices such as smoking, drinking or hours slept. International human rights group Human Rights Watch has warned about reports that authorities in Russia are considering introducing an app that migrant workers would have to download as soon as they entered the country. If this app does actually come into being, it could wreak serious harm, said Russian researcher Demela Aitkazina. Apologies to you if I got your name wrong. It's hard to imagine that the app would meet the standard needed to justify the blanket intrusion into privacy, she said. In other countries, there have been an attempts to use surveillance while limiting encroachment on privacy, although it's not clear to what extent that's been possible. It is known that in France there have been some testing of artificial intelligence tools with security cameras in the Paris metro system and buses in Cannes to check whether passengers were wearing face masks. The software has raised some domestic concerns from privacy watchdogs, but the French tech company Datacolab, which is behind this software, said its product complied fully with GDPR. It said the technology does not store or disseminate images and its goal is not to identify individuals breaking the rules. Instead, it seeks to help authorities anticipate future outbreaks based on the percentage of people not wearing masks. In South Korea, one of the first countries to use contact tracing, including credit card transaction histories, the government has begun using electronic wristbands rather than mobile phones. Authorities initially wanted to place the bracelets on tens of thousands of people who were self-isolating, prompting the Korean Bar Association to point out that they could infringe upon people's constitutional rights. In response, the Korean government agreed to use the gadgets only on people who had broken quarantine and only with the person's consent. Again, we suspect this is an issue that's going to roll on and on and possibly even past the end of the Job ID 19 pandemic. So whenever we get an update on this subject, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. 
if you were listening to the GDPR Weekly Show last week, then you would have heard us mention about Matt Hentock's GP surgery suffering a data breach as a result of using Babylon Health video appointment software. We have an update on that this week. Uh, Babylon Health has acknowledged that its GP video appointment app suffered a data breach. In a statement, the spokesman said the firm was alerted to the problem after one of its users discovered he had been given access to dozens of video recordings of other patients' consultations. A follow-up check by Babylon revealed that a small number of further UK users could also see other people's sessions. The firm said it had since fixed the issue and had notified the ICO. To give a little bit of background, Babylon allows its members to speak to a doctor, therapist or other health specialist via a smartphone video call and when appropriate sends an electronic prescription to a nearby pharmacy. It has more than 2.3 million registered users in the UK. Rory Glover, who lives in Leeds, had access to the service via his membership of a private health insurance plan with Booper. On Tuesday morning, when he went to check a prescription, he noticed he had about 50 videos in the consultation replay section of the app that did not belong to him. Clicking on one revealed that the file contained footage of another person's appointment. In an interview with the BBC, he said, I was shocked. You don't expect to see anything like that when you're using a trusted app. It's shocking to see such a monumental error has been made. Mr Glover said he had alerted a work colleague to the fact he used to work for Babylon. He in turn flagged the issue to the company's compliance department. Shortly afterwards, Mr Glover's access to the trips was removed. In a statement, Babylon said, On the afternoon of Tuesday 9th of June, we identified and resolved an issue within two hours, whereby one patient accessed the introduction of another patient's consultation recording. Our investigation showed that three patients who had booked and had appointments today were incorrectly presented with, but did not view, recordings of other patients' consultations through a subsection of the user's profile within the Babylon app. On Wednesday, the firm amended its statement to make clear that it meant two patients in addition to Mr Glover, who had in fact viewed the recording, to make a total of three. This was the result of a software error rather than a malicious attack, Babylon continued. It said the problem was identified and resolved quickly. The statement went on to say, of course we take any security issue, however small, very seriously and have contacted the patients involved to update, apologise to and support where required. A spokesman for Babylon said that Babylon's engineering team were already aware of the issue before it was contacted by Mr. Glover's workmate. He said the problem had been accidentally introduced via a new feature that lets users switch from audio to video based consultations part way through a call. He said that Babylon had informed the Information Commissioner's Office about the matter. However, Mr Glover said he still had concerns and did not intend to use the service again. It's an issue of doctor-patient confidentiality, he said. You expect anything you say to be private, not for it to be shared with a stranger. For its part, the ICO has confirmed that it has been contacted by Babylon and it was now waiting to receive the company's data breach report. People's medical data is highly sensitive information, not only do people expect it to be handled carefully and securely, organisations also have a responsibility under law, said the spokeswoman. When a data incident occurs, we would expect an organisation to consider whether it's appropriate to contact the people affected and to consider whether there are steps that can be taken to protect them from any potential adverse effect. In response to a request, Babylon said it had already been in touch with everyone involved to inform them and had apologised. We're not expecting any further public action on this case, but should we have any update, either from Babylon or the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now, the rest of this week's news. 
if you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you will have heard us several times mention the 50 million euro fine which the French data regulator, the Senior, imposed upon Doodle. Indeed, it was one of the first GDPR penalties to be imposed. A Doodle appealed against the fine. And this week it lost its appeal. The Conseil d'Etat, the Council of State, ruled in favour of France's data protection agency, CNIL, which has imposed a fine on Doodle in January of 2019. To give a little bit of history, CNIL reprimanded Doodle after a series of complaints were filed by non-profit groups La Quadrature de Net and None of Your Business. Doodle was penalised for using an opaque and unclear process for gathering data which failed to sufficiently inform users of how their information would be used. However, the most significant transgression identified by CNIL was Doodle's use of personal data for advertising purposes without having any legal justification for doing so. Doodle appealed the €50 million Euro fine, arguing that French authorities have no jurisdiction over its European headquarters, which is based in the Republic of Ireland, and stating that it feared that sanctions would affect publishers, original content creators and tech companies in Europe and beyond. Within the French legal system, there's no higher court for Doodle to appeal to, so it looks like Doodle will be having to pay this 50 million euro penalty. If there is any further statement on this, either from CNIL or from Doodle, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. We are counting down to episode 100 of the GDPR Weekly Show. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. There were possible signs of trouble ahead this week when the EDPB cast doubt over the GDPR's adequacy decision for the UK. In a letter to the European Parliament dated 15th of June 2020, Andrea Zelenik, the chair of the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, raised concerns over the UK's endeavours to reach an adequacy decision within the EU following the end of the Brexit transition period. This is important because GDPR will remain within UK domestic law under the European Withdrawal Agreement, which includes a transition period that runs until the 31st of December 2020, and the current government made it clear this week that they will not be seeking an extension to that transition period, so whatever is agreed needs to be agreed by the 31st of December this year. The idea is that the UK government and the EU will use this transition period to negotiate an agreement which may mean that the UK's 2018 Data Protection Act will be deemed adequate by EU counterparts. Should this adequacy decision not be successful, the UK will be required to amend its legislation or risk non-compliance with EU law and face any penalties that may come along with that. The letter begins by addressing the agreement made between the UK and America on access to electronic data for the purpose of countering serious crime, signed on the 3rd of October 2019. Qualifying that the letter is an initial preliminary analysis, Janet questions whether the UK was in the capacity to enter an agreement with the US as to regulating access to personal data between both countries for the purpose of preventing and prosecuting serious crime. 
She goes on to explain that in the light of the potential adequacy decision for the UK, the EDPB considers that the agreement concluded between the UK and America will have to be taken into account by the European Commission in its overall assessment of the level of protection of personal data in the UK, in particular as regards the requirement for ensure continuity protection in case of onward transfers from the UK to a third country. You will remember that we've mentioned the whole issue of transfers to third countries a number of times in previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Zernick highlights that given the EU emphasis in the field of data protection and in particular with the GDPR and the Law Enforcement Directive, the EDPB has reservations as to whether the safeguards in the agreement for access to personal data in the UK would apply in certain circumstances requiring disclosure obligations to the USA. The letter says that the level of personal data protection, including procedural conditions for access to personal data, must be ensured consistently throughout the European Union. If the approach to data consistency is deemed to be inconsistent or inadequate on the part of the UK, this poses a significant risk on the likelihood of the UK attaining an adequacy decision. Zernick's letter concludes, should the European Commission present a draft adequacy decision for the UK, the EDPB will provide its own assessment in a dedicated opinion. Since Brexit began earlier this year, the UK is now considered a third country under GDPR until 2021. This means that where personal data flows from the EU to the UK, firms dealing with this data must ensure necessary contractual provisions are in place across their operations. If that does apply to you and you're unsure of the contractual positions, then please do reach out to us at helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will be delighted to provide you with some assistance in that because there is some standard wording that needs to be used and it's important that you use the correct wording within your contract. Now, after all these discussions with the EDPB, the ideal outcome for the UK would see the EU grant an adequacy decision to the UK, which would deem the UK's data protection laws sufficiently robust to satisfy GDPR standards. It was thought that this would perhaps be something of a formality, given that the UK's Data Protection Act 2018 encapsulates pretty well everything that's within GDPR. But it seems that EDPB have reservations because of these agreements which the UK has now reached with the USA. As the UK will not retain the EU's Charter of Fundamental Human Rights, the protection of personal data would no longer be treated as a fundamental human right, as it is in Article 8 of the Charter. Second, the UK's Investigatory Powers Act 2016 may be deemed incompatible with GDPR, nor are the UK's surveillance laws considered to have the necessary protections to be afforded the right to privacy. Obviously, this is only a first initial statement from the EDPB, and it could be setting out a negotiating stance, of course. You know, there's always a boat, two sides to an argument in any negotiation. But we will be keeping a careful watch on this because obviously the clock is ticking down to the 31st of December 2020 when either we have this agreement in place of adequacy or we have to make sure that anybody transferring data to the EU has alternative contractual provisions in place. So we will no doubt be coming back to this several times in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show between now and December this year. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. 
We've mentioned the Hungarian Data Protection Authority a few times in recent episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, but this time we've got news from them not about something related to Top ID 19, but just related to GDPR and GDPR penalties. Since GDPR began on May 2018, the Hungarian Data Protection Authority has seemed reluctant to impose high penalties. Until now, the highest penalty was approximately €87,000. But this week that all changed when the NAIH, the Hungarian Data Protection Authority, imposed a fine of approximately €290,000 on an electronic communications provider. The reason for the fine was a known vulnerability in the website which was not fixed for years and allowed an ethical hacker to access a test database created several years ago containing various categories of personal data of subscribers. The data controller subject to the investigation was DigiZRT, a provider of various electronic communication services and television to more than 800,000 households in Hungary. To give a bit of background, in September 2019, an ethical hacker reported a security vulnerability to Digi. The vulnerability concerned their website running a popular open-source content management platform and, in particular, two databases behind that platform. The first was a test database of subscribers, which was created for troubleshooting purposes years ago. This database also contained identification data on system administrators, which resulted in additional security risks. The second database contained name and address details of subscribers to Digi's email newsletter. The test database contained identification data, email addresses, telephone numbers and bank account numbers. The personal data in the database was not encrypted. NAIH, the Data Protection Authority, concluded that this data could easily be used for identity theft. In their judgment, the NAIH have not revealed the exact number of data subjects affected, as this information was flagged as a trade secret, but it does mention that the vulnerability allowed potential unauthorised access to a large number of data subjects. Digi reported there were no signs of actual unauthorised access to the data other than the access by the ethical hacker. The ethical hacker only downloaded one line from the database to prove the existence of the vulnerability in her report. This was not disputed by NAIH. The vulnerability was in the open source content management system of Digi's website. According to the decision, the issue was known and there were patches available for fixing it. Digi also stated these were not part of official patches and that was the reason why they'd not been deployed on their website. Digi itself reported the personal data breach to the authority within the 72-hour deadline and terminated the vulnerability by installing the relevant patch and deleting the test database. The NAIH itself conducted an investigation between October 2019 and December 2019. The authority involved an outside AIT expert. The administrative fine of €290,000 equals approximately 0.2% of Digi's annual turnover of the previous financial year. As always, Digi has the right to appeal the decision and they've not yet indicated whether they wish to do so. So, what are the important takeaways from this decision? Well, the first is is that GDPR compliance is not solely a case of having the right documentation on the shelf. It's clear from the decision that Digi had robust internal data compliance documentation in place, including information on information security. These theoretically would have been sufficient to avoid the data breach, however it seems that the practical implementation of these rules was not sufficient. The conclusions of the decision and the amount of fine underpin that having policies without implementation cannot save data controllers from administrative fines. The decision also makes clear that even if there is no actual theft or leak of personal data, a serious vulnerability alone can result in a high penalty. The authority did not dispute that there were no signs that any of the data had been stolen or indeed there had been any unauthorised access to the data. Based on reported facts, the ethical hacker only accessed one line of the database to prove the existence of the vulnerability in her report. 
However, the authorities did not take this into account as a mitigating factor when imposing the fine. It also means that the operators of highly visited customer-facing websites must implement strict technical and organisational measures to ensure a level of security compliant with GDPR. And anyone who's been on our training courses will know that this is something which we emphasise again and again when we're training people in the implementation of GDPR. And finally, the final conclusion to be gained from this is that proper processing and reporting of the data breach to the supervisory authority is not necessarily in itself a mitigating factor. It seems that in this case, the NIH did not consider the timely reporting of the breach and full cooperation with the authority as a mitigating factor when it was deciding the amount of the penalty. According to the enforcement decision, complying with the provisions of GDPR instant reporting cannot be considered as a mitigating factor in itself. On the one hand, the other date controllers might consider not reporting incidents proactively, but on the other hand, if a supervisory authority discovers the incident, it's highly likely this factor will be among the first items on the list of aggravating circumstances. So it is really important that if you have a data breach of sufficient severity, and obviously this one was, then it is important that you report it to the ICO or wherever the equivalent information commissioner is in your country. Celebrate our 100th episode with us and you could win £100. Just name the five countries where we have most listeners worldwide. Listen out for more details. Thanks, Isabella. Yes, it's true. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning £100 when we come to celebrate episode 100 in a few weeks' time is to guess which five countries we have the most listeners in. Just list down the five countries, put them on an email to us, And one lucky person will win £100. We also have some limited edition t-shirts and mug for runners-up. So don't delay. Do it today. Hey Mike, tell our listeners what they have to do. Send your entry to competition at gdprradioshow.com The UK Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, has issued the final version of its guidance on artificial intelligence entitled Explaining Decisions Made with Artificial Intelligence AI, drafted in collaboration with the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. The ICO guidance aims to help organisations explain decisions made by AI systems to the individuals affected. Explaining AI is one of the main challenges for organisations considering the use of artificial intelligence as has been stressed in the ethics guidelines for trustworthy AI guidance prepared by the high-level expert group on artificial intelligence AIHLEG as part of the European Commission's artificial intelligence strategy. The guidance covers a wide range of data protection related topics including the basic legal framework that applies to artificial intelligence, practical steps to be taken to explain artificial intelligence assisted decisions and the types of policies, procedures and documentation that organizations can put in place. It's important to remember that this guidance is not a statutory code of practice under the Data Protection Act 2018 and operates more as a set of good practice measures for explaining artificial intelligence assisted decisions. However, due to the importance of ensuring compliance with the transparency principle of GDPR when processing personal data through artificial intelligence systems, we recommend this document is considered by every organisation testing or otherwise using artificial intelligence tools. The guidance is part of a wider range of resources that the ICO is putting in place in relation to artificial intelligence, such as the draft guidance on the artificial intelligence auditing framework, which was published for consultation last May, and the Big Data AI and Machine Learning Report, which was updated in 2017. The new guidance is formed of three parts. Part 1, the basics of explaining AI, is mainly addressed to DPOs, data protection officers, and compliance teams. 
It outlines the legal framework behind giving notice to individuals with explanations about the use of AI and AI-assisted decisions. Part 2 is about explaining AI in practice, and this is what's mainly addressed for technical teams. This section provides organisations with a set of tasks to assist in their efforts to design explainable artificial intelligence and deliver appropriate explanations to the individuals according to their needs and skills. And the final part, the third part, is about what explaining AI means for your organisation. And this part is mainly addressed to senior management, but DPOs and compliance teams will probably also find it useful. It explores the various roles, policies, procedures and documentation that organisations can put in place to ensure that they have the appropriate internal structure to provide meaningful explanations of AI decisions to affected individuals. Like everyone else, we've only just received this information, so we will have a deeper look into it in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I wish I could find a better job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal? Yes, Jubal.com. Jubal, we help people get jobs. Did somebody say Just Eat data breach? Just Eat found themselves as part of a data breach this week when dozens of takeaway receipts showing customers' personal addresses were dumped in a Cleveland's alleyway, sparking an investigation. The Just Eat tickets, which were for meals from more than one particular takeaway, showed full names and addresses and were fly-tipped in the Beach Road alleyway. When the receipts were discovered, the data breach was reported by local councillors to the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO who said it was a breach of confidentiality laws. A spokesperson for the ICO said all organisations have a duty to keep personal data secure, whether in electronic or paper format. Anyone who is concerned about how their personal data has been handled can contact the ICO. One local who asked not to be named said fly-tipping is bad enough, but there are people's names and addresses on these receipts. This is a personal information, so it's completely irresponsible whoever stumped all this rubbish to leave it just lying around. Anyone could have found it. Addressing potential concerns about privacy from residents, Councillor Rob Fall, Councillor for Jubilee Ward, said there's never any excuse for fly tip, but the rubbish strewn across the alleyway is predominantly stuff that could have gone in the grey bin. Refuge collections have continued throughout the current crisis, so it's really bewildering why it's there. He went on to say, I understand that some of the rubbish contain personal information which should have been shredded and placed in the blue bin, but hopefully council officers can trace the culprit and take the necessary action. Just Eat works with over 30,000 takeaways and restaurants around the UK. In a statement, it said that it takes data breaches very seriously and pledged to now launch a probe. A spokesperson said, We take the safeguarding of customer data extremely seriously and expect the restaurants we work with to do the same. While incidents such as this are extremely rare, where we are made aware of anything which falls below our expected standards of behaviour, our restaurant compliance team will always investigate and take action as appropriate. A spokesperson for Wire Council said our officers attended an incident of fly tipping on June 16th following a report from a member of the public. Upon arrival, the members of the public reported the incident had begun to clear away the waste and our officers assisted in removing one black bin bag of waste. There was no evidence of names and address on the waste that our crews removed, however. Our officers are carrying out a duty of care call to determine who is removing the waste from commercial outlets. It's obviously a relatively minor data breach, so it's unlikely we will hear any more on this. But if we do, we will, of course, bring it to you in an upcoming episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. It's been widely acknowledged that one of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and the ongoing results from that and perhaps the ruling in the UK that people could take one hour's exercise has prompted an increase in sales of 
spike. And so there perhaps couldn't have been a worse time than this week for online retailer Wiggle to suffer from a data breach. In their initial statement, Wiggle said, We have investigated isolated incidents where accounts have been fraudulently accessed. We understand a small number of customers' login details have been acquired outside of Wiggle systems, and some have been used to gain access to Wiggle's accounts and purchases made. We have taken steps to identify these compromised accounts, and we are individually contacting these customers. All impacted customers will be refunded. We are aware that where customers utilise the same password across multiple websites, fraudsters with access to some details can feasibly use these to try and gain access to genuine customer accounts on other websites. We recommend our customers change their password if they have any concerns. We would like to assure our customers we are prioritising all inquiries related to this issue. The point about passwords, of course, we've raised a number of times here on GDPR Weekly Show that if your data is compromised, and it is really important that you change your password. And, of course, we'd encourage people not to use the same password across multiple websites. So that was the initial notification from Wiggle. And we've not been able to establish from Wiggle whether they have contacted the ICO, and neither have been able to clarify that with the ICO this week because of the effects of everybody remote working because of the COVID-19 situation. But once we get an update from Widow or from the ICO on whether the ICO has been notified, and Widow are a reputable company, so we would hope that they have notified the ICO, we will, of course, let you know in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. However, back to the Widow situation. On the 16th of June, at 8.30 in the evening, Widow issued an additional statement. Ross Tenmo, the CEO at Widgle, said, Data security is of the utmost importance to us. We've investigated the isolated instance where accounts have been accessed and we understand a small number of customers' login details have been acquired outside of Widgle systems and some have been used to gain access to Widgle's accounts and purchases made. We've taken steps to identify these compromised accounts and we will be individually contacting these customers. All impacted customers will be refunded. To protect our customers, all accounts will require re-entry of card details for the next purchase. We are aware that where customers utilise the same password across multiple websites, fraudsters with access to some details can feasibly use these to try and gain access to genuine customer accounts. We recommend our customers change their password if they have any concerns. We would like to assure our customers we are prioritising all inquiries related to this issue. This is obviously an ongoing situation which only began this week and so once we have any update from Widdle or indeed from the ICO we will bring it to you here on the GDPR Weekly Show. Celebrate our 100th episode with us and you could win £100. Just name the five countries where we have most listeners worldwide. Listen out for more details. Thanks Isabella. Yes, it's true. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning £100 when we come to celebrate episode 100 in a few weeks' time is to guess which five countries we have the most listeners in. Just list down the five countries, put them on an email to us, and one lucky person will win £100. We also have some limited edition t-shirts and mug for runners-up. So don't delay, do it today. Hey Mike, tell our listeners what they have to do. Send your entry to competition at gdprradioshow.com Food delivery firm Fedora was a victim of a data breach this week that exposed more than 727,000 customers' details from 14 countries across Europe, including France, Finland, Austria, Spain and Italy. The exposed data included usernames, phone numbers, addresses, full names, locations and hashed passwords of Fedora customers. However, payment information or credit card details were not breached in the instant. 
delivery hero, the parent company Fedora, stated that unknown members posted the leaked customers' data on various hacking forums. The data was dumped in a series of SQL files for each country, labelled as customer address and customers. The affected customers are getting suspicious emails from unknown third parties, the company said. We should of course warn here that if you are a customer of Fedora and you get a suspicious email, please don't respond to it as it may well be a phishing attempt, so do be careful. In a statement, Delivery Hero said, Unfortunately, we can confirm that a data breach has been identified concerning personal data dating back to 2016. The data originates from some countries across our current and previous markets. We've started a thorough internal investigation and have informed all relevant authorities. We are working closely with our security and data protection teams, as well as local authorities, to identify what caused the breach and inform the affected parties. In addition, Troy Hunt, data breach expert and creator of the Have I Been Porn data breach notification service, tweeted, Fedora had 583,000 unique customers exposed in 2016. Data included names, delivery addresses, phone numbers and passwords stored as either sorted MD5 or Bcrypt. He did point out, however, that 73% of the email addresses were already in the Have I Been Porn database. We mentioned earlier the data breach with Just Eat, which was a very simple manual data breach, but multiple security incidents have been reported on food delivery service providers globally. In recent incidents, there have been attacks on Takeaway.com, DoorDash, a San Francisco-based food delivery service, and other online food delivery services. You've tried the rest and not impressed. Take a chance and try the best. Back in episode 89 of the GDPR Witcher Show, we brought you details about a data breach involving automatic number plate recognition cameras in Sheffield, in Yorkshire. It's now been revealed that the system leaked some 8.6 million driver records. An online AMPR dashboard responsible for managing the AMPR cameras, tracking license plate numbers and viewing vehicle images was left exposed on the internet without any password or security in place. This meant anybody on the internet could have accessed the dashboard by their web browser and peeked into a vehicle's journey or possibly corrupted records and overridden camera system settings. AMPR, Automatic Number Plate Recognition, is a complex system of interconnected cameras beside the roadside that automatically capture vehicles, license plate, number plate details and run the numbers through government databases for potential matches. This is useful for the police for enforcing speeding penalties and also for identifying known adversaries in determining crime and terrorism. It can't be overlooked that the AMPR system also generates significant revenue for the government, generating fines of upwards of £200 million and being structurally significant, the more efficient than having roaming speeding police. The council and South Yorkshire Police have suggested there were no victims of the data leak, but on close examination, we can't be so sure. A, because we don't know who gained access to the data in the time it was available, and B, because the cameras don't only record the number plate of the car, they actually take a photograph of the car, and so in a number of the photographs, it's more than possible that it will be possible to visually identify the driver and indeed probably the front seat passenger of the vehicle and of course that brings its own GDPR implications. Now of course although this was a data breach it's not the only place where cameras like this can be viewed. Perhaps the most common ones are the cameras run by Transport for London which typically show the traffic situation at a number of points across London and indeed that's publicly accessible via a map on their website. However, as we said that the pictures there tend to be taken from a reasonable distance away and so you can't really make out details of individual vehicles that well, certainly not 
who was driving the vehicle, just the volume of vehicles. All of the AMPR cameras tend to work via an IP address, but often, of course, hopefully anyway, requiring a username and password to access them. But the fact they are on a public network and the fact they use an IP address opens up a challenge for IT professionals and business policy makers alike. Internet of Things search engines like Shodan and Census.io constantly sweep the web for public IP addresses and open ports commonly used by IP cams and make them available for anyone to view. Many devices are either secured with easily guessable default username password combinations or they have no password protection at all. If you've ever typed a local address, http colon slash slash 192.168.01, for instance, to access your router into your web browser, then you get an idea of how IP cams work. It's a very similar function. And because of that, if your router, for example, has remote administration enabled and no password in place, a malicious actor can find that device and potentially compromise your network. It's a good reason, for instance, for either making sure remote administration is disabled on your router or that you do at least have a strong password in place. Why isn't this done with AMPR cameras more widely? Well, simply because there are so many of them. Um, So the way there then of setting a distinct password for each camera would become almost impossible for the camera administrators to actually function. So even if there is a password, once somebody discovers it for one organisation, it's likely that password is the same for all of the AMPR cameras that's under that authority's jurisdiction. It should be one in mind that it's not only GDPR that applies to AMPR cameras. The UK Protection of Freedoms Act 2012 imposed tighter regulations and established clear procedures on how information pertaining to surveillance systems including CCTV and AMPR systems should be handled. While open data access to CCTV cameras ensures greater transparency, the same functionality can be misused to invade someone's privacy. For example, a recent report reveals how the extensive camera network and map could be used to track journeys of alleged lockdown offenders, including, perhaps most infamously, the British political assistant Dominic Cummings. The Information Commissioner's Office of the ICO is still investigating the Sheffield AMPR data breach and we have no indication from them yet on the sort of level of penalty that they are looking to impose on Sheffield City Council. Again, we suspect this is a situation where COVID-19 is going to have a slight impact in that of course dealing with the results of trial id19 and the impact on local communities has been a vast drain on local authorities budgets and so doubtless the ico when it comes to set the penalty will bear in mind affordability on the part of sheffield city council once we do have any update from the ico on this case of course we will bring it to you in the next available episode of the gdpr weekly show We cross to Canada now, where last Friday the Quebec government introduced Bill 64, which would update, amongst other statutes, the Act respecting the protection of personal information in the private sector. Drawing inspiration from GDPR, the amendments would impose penalties on businesses ranging from $15,000 to $25 million, or an amount corresponding to 4% of worldwide annual turnover, whichever is higher. The new rules would apply under certain conditions to the personal information of Quebec customers held by organisations doing business in the province. They also introduced mandatory notification requirements following a confidentiality incident that presents a risk of serious injury. A confidentiality incident is defined as follows. 
access to personal information not authorized by law, use of personal information not authorized by law, release of personal information not authorized by law, or the loss of personal information or any other breach of the protection of such information. In such cases, the organization must notify the commission to access other information. It also it must also notify anyone whose personal information is affected by the breach, failing which the Commission may order it to do so. The organisation must also keep a record of the incident. If it fails to report the incident when required to do so, it may be subject to recently introduced sanctions. This latest update to the law also grants additional protection to individuals regarding the use of their personal information and its retention. In particular, businesses will have to request separate consent for each new use of data. In addition, they will not be able to share personal information with third parties without the consent of the individuals. The amendments also require the destruction or anonymization of personal data when the intended use ends. Any organisation that holds personal information will also have to designate a person responsible for the protection of personal information and put in place policies and procedures for this purpose. So as you can see, it is very much closely modelled on GDPR and another example where GDPR is forming the basis for data protection law worldwide, which has to be a good thing for everybody because if we can all work to a common rule set, it should make everyone's lives much easier. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. In its two-year GDPR review, the European Broadcast Union has raised a number of comments about the implementation of GDPR. As part of their public service remit and their specific relationship with their audiences, public service broadcasters have a particular duty to ensure that personal data is processed in a responsible way and in compliance with GDPR and other applicable data protection laws. However, the EBU Data Protection Officers Group, representing DPOs from its membership, calls for increased actions that stakeholders truly benefit from a level playing field when complying with GDPR. Yust Negerman, EBU DPO Group Chairman and the MPO's Privacy Officer, said, We've spent the past two years investing significant resources to ensure that our organisations are compliant with GDPR. What's become clear is that the interpretation and enforcement of GDPR needs to be both more consistent and more effective across the EU. This is crucial to maintain our audience's trust in the digital world. In the view of the European Broadcast Union, this is particularly relevant when negotiating control of processor agreements with global third parties, such as big players in the IT sector and major online platforms, who can dictate their terms to customers. In practice, business customers are confronted with a take-it-or-leave-it choice due to the significant imbalance in bargaining power in data-driven markets. In the view of the EBU, and I must admit that I personally have some sympathy with this argument, This imbalance can be solved by having strong EDPB guidelines and recommendations on the notions of processor, on the processor-controller relationship, on joint controllers, and more generally on how to determine the status of a service provider. Also most useful would be the adoption of EU model contracts that enable organisations to jointly push back against terms that they deem to be unfair. There are several other crucial areas where divergent views and approaches from supervisory authorities could have important consequences not only for individuals' rights, but also for business activities. These include cookie consent management, the interplay between GDPR and e-privacy, DPIA and high-risk processing activities, and the scope of individuals' rights and profiling. Unless GDPR enforcement rapidly becomes more consistent, more effective, data processes cannot be implemented uniformly across Europe. That final part, I'm not sure I 100% agree with the EBU on, 
because yes the implementation is different across Europe for sure but the rules are exactly the same so it shouldn't be that difficult to implement across Europe where I would 100% agree there does need to be more consistency is in the approach taken by regulators to breaches of GDPR and to the penalties imposed for breaches of GDPR and I think that is one area where the EU and indeed the UK still have a long way to go. And finally this week, news that the French data authority CNIL has clarified its position on web data scraping under GDPR. The guidance from CNIL, and it's presumed that this will soon be adopted across all the information commissioners across the EU and the UK, is that contact information is regarded as personal data and is entitled to protection even if it's publicly available on a website and has been scraped from that website. This type of data, where it's shown on a website, is often collected by firms that intend to sell it to third parties for direct marketing purposes, a process known as web scraping or data extraction. The guidance does not demand new rules, but CNIL says it plans to be particularly observant of how data on French citizens is utilised, and as I say, no doubt we will find in the coming weeks that that's echoed across the other EU information commissioners. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurety production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurety. Until next time, bye-bye.